Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So in the past, Kellen and I have done a few episodes already on why we're wrong or so they say. So far, we've done those on resource depletion and climate change. Today's episode is another installment of that sub-series. And this one's a little unique because while those other two topics are ones that we stand by our claim that they are inevitable, right? We are going to experience resource depletion if we continue to grow. And climate change is already happening and is going to worsen. But this topic of conflict is one that Kellen and I haven't made any specific claims on. We haven't said that a certain type of conflict is inevitable, though I do think that we stand by the idea that as collapse happens, as there is a continuation of resource depletion, worsening climate change, as there are mass migrations, political instability, economic instability, conflict of some sort is highly likely and on a pretty mass scale. So we want to make it clear that as we talk about some of these different ideas, some of these reasons why people say that conflict, whether that's civil conflict, global conflict, won't happen. There are reasons for why they believe that this is not something to worry about. Kellen and I are not stating that we're guaranteeing that nuclear war is going to happen or that there will be a civil war or something like that. Rather, we're just trying to take a well-rounded view of the different ideas around conflict, why people say that conflict isn't an issue, and the ways that we would counter that based on how we see things. Yeah, for me, I found that these conversations where we look at kind of the other side or what people are saying in opposition to things that we've claimed, I find it really valuable. 
it helps me gain a broader perspective. You know, my opinion is a little more well-rounded. I'm able to speak to people who might disagree with me and do so more effectively. There's not anybody out there saying that there's not ever going to be any sort of conflict. Like, there is currently conflict. You know, right now, Ukraine has the world's attention because of Russia's attack, their invasion. But in recent years, you look at Syria and Yemen and civil wars in Central Africa. You know, conflict is something that's ongoing and hasn't really ever ceased. But while we've talked about all these friction points that are coming down the road that make internal and global conflict more and more and more likely... There are a lot of voices out there saying it's never going to get to a really highly escalated level. Like there are claims that, yeah, we're not ever going to see a civil war in the U.S. Or we're not ever going to have a third world war. And I think it's important to see why they're making those claims. And while we're not saying a civil war is inevitable or a third world war is inevitable, we are saying, again, that the likelihood of those things continues to increase And so I've been fascinated as I've been doing the research on this topic. I'm excited to talk about it. I think it's going to be really enlightening. Okay, so we have identified four or five different areas, or at least four or five different arguments, claims, for why we're never going to see conflict on a large scale. And when you talk about global conflict, one of the biggest reasons that comes up is people talk about the nuclear deterrent, mutually assured destruction. This idea that because we now have nuclear weapons that have such destructive capability, nobody is going to ever be the first to launch one because the second they press the button, others will launch a counterattack and then everybody loses. And so as part of our natural human drive to survive, there's this claim that we'll never have really large scale global war because of the nuclear deterrent. I like that you kind of came out of the gate swinging there. You just took the big one, the the nuclear annihilation, and said, let's start there. So that's awesome. Yeah, MAD, so MAD stands for Mutually Assured Destruction. And it is, to me, a fascinating topic because people use it in a way to basically say, we don't have to worry about nukes at all. Like, there's no nuclear threat because no nation would dare fire off even a single nuclear bomb. Because if they did, their country would be blown to high health, right? You mean blown to high heaven, right? (laughs) Is that the phrase? (laughs) I'm one of those people that likes to like mix and match my phrases. Heaven or hell, either way, they'd be blown off the map. Well, we'll use that phrase. And one of the biggest things around mutually assured destruction is this idea that both nations have to have the ability to do a second strike. So essentially that they couldn't preemptively have all of their nuclear capabilities knocked out with a single blow, right? If each nation could either detect that nuclear missiles were coming their way, or after even being hit by a nuclear missile, could still then fire off their own, that's when mutually assured destruction became a thing. If one nation didn't have enough nuclear devices to be able to retaliate, then obviously mutually assured destruction wasn't a possibility because one nation could completely annihilate the other without having that retaliatory strike. Yeah, and this is an area where people feel pretty comfortable and confident. One article I read, an individual said, where once I lived in fear of nuclear weapons, now I pin my hopes on them. Bold statement. Yeah, and the idea goes back decades and decades, you know, ever since the atom bomb was dropped and the world saw just how destructive nuclear weapons can be. There's been this realization that with 
the use of these weapons, you can essentially bring a nation to its knees. Winston Churchill, in 1955, he described this idea of mutually assured destruction this way. He said, safety will be the sturdy child of terror and survival, the twin brother of annihilation. So it's this idea that everything is going to be okay because everybody is too afraid to make a choice that will result in their own annihilation or destruction. So I will say that as a general rule, I think mutually assured destruction holds, right? I think for the most part, yes, this is true. A nation is not going to just fire nuclear weapons at another nation because they know they will be retaliated on. It's what has kept nuclear weapons from being utilized ever since World War II. And by the way, I'll just interject and say what's interesting there is that that nuclear deterrence has become the strategy, the grounds on which nations say, this is why we need nuclear weapons. Let us have nuclear weapons because that will deter attacks from others. Yeah, exactly. And so it's almost like this idea of mutually assured destruction is creating more nuclear devices, which is funny because, you know, another way to assure that no nation ever gets hit with a nuclear weapon would be to just get rid of nuclear weapons. But no, no, we need to create more nuclear weapons so every country can have this mutually assured destruction. And that's silly to me. But what I was going to say was, I, I think this holds up most of the time, but it's not foolproof. And we'll talk about some of the reasons why here. And I do want to mention, again, I am not saying, we are not saying that we think that there's going to be nuclear war, right? That nations are going to fire nuclear weapons. But I think that there is some flaws in the thinking that it's just black and white and saying, you know, if, if for example, Russia were to fire a tactical nuclear weapon inside Ukraine, I don't necessarily believe that someone's going to retaliate on Russia with their nuclear weapons of their own and blow them off the map. I just don't see that being the case. You know, I personally won't be surprised if by the end of this war, a nuclear weapon of some type has been utilized. And I also won't be surprised if it doesn't end up in a complete nuclear winter that destroys the entire world. So let's talk a little bit about why why that is. The first one is a big one, and it relies on this assumption that there won't be any mistakes, misconceptions, or miscommunications along the way. And there are examples of this very thing nearly taking place during the Cold War that could have ended in all-out nuclear war. There were numerous instances of false positives in regards to the detection of a nuclear launch. For example, there's a man by the name of Stanislav Petrov, and I should say there was a man named Stanislav Petrov. He died in 2017. Petrov was in the Soviet military. He was the duty officer at the command center for the Oko nuclear early warning system when that system reported that a missile had been launched from the United States. And that following that, there were five more that were shot from the United States. So in this moment, he has to judge whether we retaliate immediately or not. And he judged those reports to be a false alarm. Had he, for whatever reason, not judged it to be a false alarm, he could have said, you know, full alert, push the big red button, we must retaliate. He's been called the, the man who saved the world in reports after basically they had said that had he retaliated as expected, it would have resulted in a large-scale nuclear war which would have wiped out half the population of the countries involved. I mean, we're talking about like serious stuff here. So it's in this case, not so easy as just saying, oh, it never happened because country A would know they'd be destroyed by country B if they ever fired them off. 
Well, with all the technologies that are utilized in maintaining these systems and all the areas for miscommunications or even hacking to make something appear that it's not, there's just so many ways that thing could go wrong without anyone even firing a missile in the first place. Yeah, my understanding when you describe some of these examples, you know, faulty computer codes that have been interpreted as a missile launch, a ruptured gas pipeline, apparently even a flock of geese has been mistaken for a missile launch. So I think you make a really good point that there's room for accidents to happen. And that is even just assuming that people will behave rationally, right? I don't know if you plan to mention this, Corey, but mutually assured destruction and that being... A deterrent is an argument that requires people are in a rational mind wanting to survive. They feel like there's a lot to lose. But if you get the right people who have the power to make those decisions that have nothing to lose, imagine a world leader who is just completely off their rocker, which frankly isn't that hard to imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Given current scenarios. And yeah, I'm sure there's certain safeguards or checks and balances, but even if it's just a handful of people that for whatever reason are not thinking rationally, if they're emotionally charged or if they already think all is lost or if an individual has a fatal disease and they're a sociopath or for some reason they've convinced themselves that there's a greater good to be accomplished by sending mass destruction to another nation. There's so many ways that we could end up with nuclear war just because we can't always trust people to act rationally. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, I would have looked at someone like Kim Jong-un, right? If he had suddenly garnered the power of as many nuclear devices as the U.S. has, would he be unstable enough to to not care about his own people, just be driven by sort of the hate of the West? But today, you know, I mean, think about Kim Jong-un. We're in this time right now with Putin that... There's all this talk about him not being well, about not being stable, about not having anything to lose. Just today, today being the day that we're recording this, not the day that it's coming out, there's an article titled, Russian TV says nuclear war is the only alternative to Russia's victory in Ukraine. And obviously that's likely just propaganda, you know, it's just trying to instill fear in the enemy or whatever. But it's becoming more and more believable, frankly, as... Putin seemingly becomes more and more unstable. He's backed himself into this corner that he cannot get out of. He is not doing well in this war. And the world as a whole is going to look down on him and Russia for a very long time after this. It seems like there really is no way out of this for Russia. There's no positive spin to really be put on this war. And so the idea of somebody having nothing to lose isn't that far-fetched to me. Again, not saying that Vladimir Putin is going to launch all his nukes because he's mad about not winning this war. But the point you make, Kellen, is exactly right, that mutually assured destruction is relying on the fact that the parties involved are acting rationally and they care about the survival of their own countrymen. Yeah, so I think mutually assured destruction is a valid argument under the right circumstances. But a couple of questions I think you have to ask One of them is, as a nation, when have you collected a big enough arsenal for it to be an effective deterrent? Like, if a nation has just one nuke, can you really say that going against a global superpower, mutually assured destruction, would be effective? Another question to ask is, what if you destroy their arsenal first? You mentioned maybe there's ways that you can hack into their system. Maybe there's ways you can actually physically destroy their nuclear arsenal. 
And then all of a sudden, you're not worried about any retaliation, right? And here, we're talking about nuclear war, but does a nuclear deterrent stop other types of war? If there are large-scale cyber attacks and biochemical weapons and actual physical invasions of a country, is all of that allowed, I guess you could say, under a scenario like this, and the only thing that's off the table is nuclear war? So going back to the idea that we won't ever experience major conflict because there are nukes, we could have all sorts of awful wars and nuclear weapons might not ever even be involved. We're already having awful wars, right? You hear about the atrocities in Ukraine and the the war crimes committed, the murder of innocent civilians, the sexual abuses, and, and all of those things are atrocious. So your point there is valid. And by the way, you know, you mentioned earlier how the Ukraine-Russia war is getting a lot of attention. But there are conflicts with atrocities that that may rival or be even worse. You know, in Myanmar, Eritrea, just to name a couple, there are so many different conflicts happening throughout the world at any given time. The Ukraine one is, just happens to be the one that's the most publicized and the most documented. So a couple other just quick things to mention here with mutually assured destruction before we move on. You know, there's advancing technologies. There's this constant adaptation that has to continually be had from every nation who wants to basically be able to continue to assure they have that second strike capability, whether that's from, you know, missile interception or hypersonic missiles, or like you said, the ability to hack into an enemy nation's systems. There's all sorts of different technologies that are coming out, you know, space weapons and things like that, that it's always going to be a race. And much of that research and the things that are happening there are secretive. Not a lot is necessarily known about what other nations are able to do. And so it's this constant battle where nations are trying to get a leg up on each other. And it really only takes one time for that to succeed. When one nation does have that leg up in which they can cripple the other nation without having to worry about a second strike, mutually assured destruction is out the window at that point. The last one I'll mention here, Kellen, and you can add any others that you have, uh, is the idea of terrorism, right? When you talk about mutually assured destruction, it's two nations that has a large number of people that it represents and it's trying to protect. But with terrorism, you know, terrorists can get their hands on nuclear weapons. There's that potential without even having to have develop them themselves, whether that's just through corruption or having enough money or whatever the case is. And they can use that weapon possibly without being detected as far as who they are and possibly not caring that even if they are found out, right? And that's scary, number one, because there's this opportunity for nuclear weapons to be fired, to be utilized without retribution because we don't know where it came from. But that lack of understanding of where it came from can also cause for retaliation to happen on the wrong parties, right? Imagine a terrorist organization fires a nuclear weapon that strikes the United States. The United States, whoever the president is, is likely feeling like they have to retaliate. And who do they retaliate on? Who knows? If they don't know who did it, they might just pick the most obvious enemy of the moment, right? Or they might pick the opportunity that they feel is going to benefit them as a state the most, or whatever the case is. I mean, you don't have to look back too far to see cases of this happening. Whether it's a nuclear bomb or a plane hitting the World Trade Centers, what did we do then? How did we react? We went to a nation that had nothing to do, really, with the event itself, made up a reason to be there and, and spend a decade there. Yeah, in that specific example, we spent two decades there. <laughs> Time is flying by. <laughs> Forget it's already been 20 years. That's wild. So yeah, the point is, it's messy. It's murky. 
to me, mutually assured destruction can't be as black and white as a lot of people want to make it out to be. And I've just got to read one portion of an article that I came across. It was from somebody who was talking about why the nuclear deterrent isn't really effective. And there are plenty of people who claim that it's because of mutually assured destruction that the Cold War never escalated further than it did. But this person was claiming there were lots of other reasons for that. And I just think it's funny how they worded some things. They said, singling out nuclear weapons as the reason why the Cold War never became hot is somewhat like saying that a junkyard car without an engine or wheels never sped off the lot only because no one turned the key. And then later they say, in colloquial terms, if a dog does not bark in the night, can we say with certainty that no one walked by the house? Deterrence enthusiasts are like the woman who sprayed perfume on her lawn every morning. When a perplexed neighbor asked about this strange behavior, she replied, I do it to keep the elephants away. The neighbor protested, but there aren't any elephants within 10,000 miles of here. Whereupon the perfume sprayer replied, you see, it works. So who's to say whether nuclear deterrence has been as effective as some claim? Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. But I think a lot of the points you've brought up here, Corey, some of the ones that I've mentioned show that we can't always completely rely on that going forward. All right, so let's be all done talking about nuclear deterrent and mutually assured destruction. Another argument, this one's quick, but one reason why people say we won't ever see any sort of really escalated or prolonged war is because social media has changed things. Basically, social media changes what we see of any war that's taking place. In the past, governments could control perceptions and push their propaganda to citizens. They could make sure people only saw the footage they wanted them to see. But now with social media, people are all taking videos on their phones and posting it online. And so the claim is the whole world can see what's actually going on. Therefore, any conflict will be short-lived because people will see how bad it is or they'll see that it's not justified. I think that is a claim that looks really great on paper, but to me is just completely bogus. I just feel like there's so many holes in that. Again, we're just going to refer to this. Look at the Russia-Ukraine war. It has been, I, I think this is likely the most documented major war ever. You know, you can log on to Reddit and get on combat footage and just watch hours and hours and hours of footage out of that war. And yes, you're right. You are seeing all these atrocities happening. You're watching war crimes taking place in front of you. So therefore, shouldn't every Russian know and be protesting against their own government for being involved in this war? No, it's not happening. There were protests for sure, but I don't think that it's making this any more short-lived. We live in an age where the truth can be looked past. And if it's not blatantly just ignored or looked past, then it's manipulated to make it what you want to make it. And if Vladimir Putin wants to manipulate his people to believe what he wants them to believe, he will do that. And the people who want to believe it will believe it. Same goes for QAnon or for any conspiracy theories or any of that stuff. The truth is out there. It is plain to see. But people, maybe this is also because of social media, can so quickly disseminate falsities and basically just make their own truth. Yeah, I think we've seen plenty of evidence that social media itself can be a weapon of warfare propaganda. You think of all the hacking, you think of all the bots, you think of doctored footage. You know, there's lots of ways that a false message can still be spread. Maybe just as a quick example of that, COVID-19, right? 
you know, one of the reasons those conspiracy theories were able to catch on so quickly and spread so far was because of social media. And those are still doing damage today. I was, again, on Facebook, just scrolling through. I like to get some of the, the local happenings from Facebook. But I saw this article that was talking about the increase in hepatitis cases in children and how that's worrying some doctors. And like 80% of the comments were people saying, I'll bet you anything that they got the vaccine, didn't they? I'll bet you anything this was from the vaccine over and over again. And like people still more than two years later are fueling these conspiracy theories. But I feel like the only reason that those are allowed to continue on is because they're propagating on Facebook and on social media. Not to mention censorship, right? Governments can go ahead and block certain platforms, certain voices to make sure that people still only see what they want them to see. Okay, so that one, I feel like much less valid. <laughs> We've kind of debunked that one. Here's one that has some compelling arguments both ways. And this actually was introduced to me by a family member when we were talking about some things happening globally. And I said, wow, it's a little bit shocking. It's kind of heating up, isn't it? And this family member said to me, yeah, but I don't think we ever have to worry about any real large scale conflict taking place. And I was like, oh, why is that? And they said, well, in today's world, we're just all so interconnected globally. We're so interdependent that nobody's ever going to let it get to the point where we're in a world war or anything like that. There's just too much to lose. So there is this idea of interdependency and that that is a deterrent. There's a really fascinating journal article from 2018. It's called The Impact of Economic Interdependence on the Probability of Conflict Between States, The Case of American-Chinese Relationship on Taiwan Since 1995. If you ever want to go find the journal Review of Economics and Political Science. Sounds like a, a quick read, some light reading. Anyways, they did a good job in this article at expressing a few different viewpoints on this. And one of those, it says they argue that economic interdependence lowers the likelihood of war by increasing the value of trading over the alternative of aggression. Interdependent states would rather trade than invade. As long as high levels of interdependence can be maintained, we have reason for optimism. They also say that as you increase your ties between two different countries in certain fields, then you achieve greater cooperation in other fields. So the article states, these linkages are supposed to strengthen communication and reduce misunderstandings which may cause tension and creates cultural and institutional mechanisms capable of mediating conflicts that may arise between them. At the same time, mutual recognition of mutual benefits enhances peace. So there's some other arguments to be made here where, where they're saying because you're going to hurt yourself if you fight with that other country that you trade with nobody's ever going to let it escalate to that you've got strong economic ties then it's a lot more likely that states will use non-military threats such as economic sanctions one statement was trade pays more than war so dependent states would prefer to trade not invade you know, I think this one is really compelling. I think we see today that it's true in so many ways. Our relationship with China, for example, is probably the, the prime example of this. We do rely on each other economically. I think the big caveat to this one, the big piece that's missing here is that this works great as long as we maintain the status quo. 
as long as we are living in prosperous times where resources are plentiful and there's plenty of opportunity for trade, then I agree with this. We likely wouldn't see large-scale conflict. But as the entire premise of this podcast shows, we are headed towards times where resources are not going to be plentiful, trade is not going to work out correctly, countries are going to have to cease exports to maintain and make sure they have enough for their own people. And as those types of things starts happening, it makes this argument null and on the flip side can actually make things worse. Because if I rely on China, for example, for an import necessary for my country's survival, if they are no longer able to export that to me because they need to keep it for their own people, they have just committed an act of war by denying my country access to that, which can can lead to tensions. And, and frankly, this is what I see happening a lot in the future. And honestly, we're starting to see that now with a lot of the issues around the food supply chains. You know, countries like Ukraine or Russia ceasing to export wheat, countries ceasing to export fertilizers because they don't have enough to export without hurting themselves. Yeah, you worded that really well. And that's one of the counterpoints that this article makes, you know, that high interdependence can actually increase the probability of war. A state, a country, a nation might have an incentive to initiate war in order to ensure they get continued access to whatever the resource, whatever materials or goods it is that they need. So one thing that comes to mind that makes it a really easy visual for me is an example that we brought up when we talked about fresh water and water scarcity. You know, you think of the Nile River as it flows through Ethiopia and Sudan and Egypt. If Ethiopia builds a dam that makes it so they're able to keep that water for themselves and it doesn't get to Egypt, then Egypt has incentive to go to war with Ethiopia because if they don't, they won't be able to survive. They need that water. And the same thing could be said for anything that we depend on, right? Maybe it's even something like microchips. If we've got this interdependence with other nations, we really need something to keep functioning. The moment, like you said, that things get tight and they're not providing that, now we have more incentive to invade than incentive to trade, right? So that also reminds me of a term used in, in the business world called vertical integration. And it's basically this idea that you buy the supply chain above you in order to lower your costs. And a lot of times that ends up happening through like hostile takeovers, right? Of other corporations, you buy out the companies who supply you in order to secure your ability to continue to receive those goods. So if a nation is not able to produce something for themselves and they rely on a different nation to supply that for them, if there's ever a threat to the continuation of that supply, then yes, there is that increased probability of war. So again, while I see why this works in times of plenty, as things get worse, it does feel like it falls apart. Yeah, and honestly, there have been some researchers who have shown evidence that states often trade with the enemy while at war. So economic interdependence is irrelevant to conflict. At least that's one claim. Another consideration, you know, some say that if there's interdependence between two countries and one is stronger than the other, then yeah, the weaker one is deterred from engaging in conflict, but the bigger one won't be. It's like the big bully at school that beats up on the little kid. The bully isn't deterred from conflict. But the poor kid who's getting picked on is. And so this idea of interdependence requires that there's an equal level of 
power, and often it also requires that there's an equal level of benefit in the trade going both ways. Okay, so let's talk about the next argument for why major conflict isn't going to happen globally. And I'll just preface it by saying it reminds me of people who say, hey, we're not going to have another recession because after the 2008 recession, a lot of regulations got put in place. Banks can't extend the same kind of loans that they used to. So we're all good. Basically, this argument is at a systematic level, safeguards have been put in place that will ensure things never escalate to a really heightened level. The example for this is NATO. So the North Atlantic Treaty was signed April 4th, 1949. The Allies agreed at the time that an armed attack against one or more of them shall be considered an attack against them all. And if such an attack were to take place, each ally would take such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force in response. So this was an agreement, an effort to deter Soviet aggression, and also to prevent the revival of some of these European military powers. Anyways, there's lots of treaties, there's different agreements between nations and countries and kingdoms, but the point is people say, hey, we've set things up. There's a contract in place to make sure we're not ever going to see any major conflict globally. You know, I think this is one that, especially in regards to NATO, I guess it depends on which country you are, whether or not you think that the existence of NATO is a deterrent of war. Again, just looking at the current situation that we're in with the Russia-Ukraine war, one of the biggest reasons that Russia claims this war is happening is because of the expansion of NATO. You know, I'm not big into geopolitical like theory. I, I'm not super educated on, on all of that. But I do think from things that I've read and the little that I've looked into it, you can simultaneously condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also disagree with NATO's expansion and understand why Russia feels threatened. As NATO has grown closer and closer to Russia's borders as more countries join, it allows NATO to put military bases near Russia's border. And that sort of continued threat over decades, you know, that is a threat to Russia. And this war can be viewed as a response to that threat. Again, in no way saying or condoning what Russia is doing, but understanding where they're coming from in it. So when I look at NATO and I and somebody says, oh yeah, there's not going to be any any conflict in the future because we have we have NATO and we have these systems put in place to prevent that. It's like saying we've put laws in place to prevent drugs. We've made drugs illegal. So we don't have to worry about drugs being a problem anymore because we have these the systemic policies put in place. Well, heck, you could argue that and a lot of people do argue that because drugs are illegal, it makes them more highly used, right? It puts more money into drug trade. So then I look, you know, I, I'm basically just comparing that to the situation in, with NATO and think just because it's a systemic organization that was put in place doesn't in any way mean that it's achieving its actual purpose and on the contrary could be making it worse. Yeah, to me, it kind of feels like saying, hey, I joined a street gang, so now I'm safe. And while there's some truth to that, that you've got others on your team, unless every other individual out there is either too weak to pose a threat or there aren't any other teams or everyone joins your team, your gang, and you completely trust everyone else in the gang. You know, so many things have to line up perfectly for that to be a reasonable argument. 
Another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that the premise of collapse is that systems will deteriorate. You know, organizations, as things get desperate, as there's competition for resources and as there's climate change and all these other catastrophes and friction points and people are running out of money and energy, it's not too difficult to imagine that certain contracts and treaties and agreements might not always hold up. And so I think there can be arguments made for and against NATO, for example. You could say that NATO has done a lot to ensure general peace worldwide. But as things progress down the collapse pathway, I don't think it's a guarantee that we can always expect that outcome from NATO. Yeah, and your first point around, you, you said like a street gang, it's like we have all these individual nations and it almost feels like if every nation was its own <laughs> without having allies and partners and, and the creation of things like NATO, then major global scale conflict seems less likely to me because there's too many moving parts. When you, when you create NATO and the UN and the EU and all these different things, you're basically making teams, right? And it makes it easier for it to be my team against your team. And then on your second point, yeah, if, we, if we've created teams and one member of the team suddenly becomes dysfunctional, what incentive do we have to keep them as part of the team, right? If the U.S. empire falls, if the U.S. dollar is no longer the reserve currency, if the U.S. becomes impotent, what good do we do to NATO, right? Why does NATO need us anymore? Or if Spain defaults on its debt or, or whatever the case might be, or as the world as a whole, as you mentioned, as we go into collapse, as resources become more scarce and trade becomes a thing of the past and there's so much more friction there, it's not hard at all for me to see supposed allies turn on each other and, and organizations like NATO fall apart. So it feels like a pretty solid answer across a lot of these arguments is, yeah, those answers hold up pretty well just as long as we're continuing along the status quo. When the status quo disappears, pretty much all bets are off the table and conflict, again, seems pretty inevitable. Okay, so up to this point, we've talked about global conflict, conflict between nations. But at the beginning of the episode, Kellen, you had mentioned this idea that there's civil conflict as well, conflict within within nations. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I thought it would be interesting to bring up this idea of why some people say civil war will never happen in the US again. So one of the main arguments here is that civil war is really rare. It's hard to find an exact definition of what qualifies as a civil war and what doesn't. But academically, some say it's a conflict between two organized groups that kills a thousand plus people or at least in the hundreds per year. So the argument is that really civil wars happen only in a few countries at any given time in a year, and it almost never happens in rich countries. So Western countries with a lot to lose in a war like that, it just really doesn't happen. So these arguments are coming from an interview that was done in the Harvard Gazette. This was a Harvard political scientist who, who's making this claim that civil war is extremely unlikely. What was interesting, though, was that when they're talking about why a civil war wouldn't happen, they're basically talking about that academic definition of a civil war. But they did say this. They said, there are so many bad things that can happen well short of a civil war that I wish we as a country were talking more about. And it's funny because of, of all the articles that I read and all the sources that I, I tried to find where people were saying civil war in the U.S. was not going to happen, pretty much every single one of them said civil war is not going to happen in the U.S., but terrible conflict is. 
The title of this specific article in the Harvard Gazette was, We Don't Need a Civil War to Be in Serious Trouble. Yeah, that idea of civil war as a definition is really interesting because we think about the American Civil War that took place mostly over the issue of slavery, and we think of two sides lined up against each other, shooting bullets at each other. I think of this last couple of years, and within a short period of time, we had like thousands of people out in the streets battling police in Portland, Oregon, and we had the Capitol riot taking place, and we had Kyle Rittenhouse shooting somebody, you know, and, and all over the nation, there was all this conflict. And if in a certain period of time, a thousand people got killed in that conflict, would it qualify as civil war? Or does it have to be like two united sides fighting against one another? And that's what frustrates me about this whole conversation. And what kind of frustrated me about each of these articles that I read was there, there seems to be a lack of a definition of what would actually constitute a civil war. You know, one article that I'll mention here in a minute, I'll actually read a little bit from, was talking about how, no, there won't be a civil war in the US, but there will probably be, you know, it'll be the troubles like in Ireland. And I mean, potato, potato to me, right? You think of the Syrian civil war, that was not two groups, just two groups against each other. There was dozens of different factions and militias that were fighting for power within a nation or fighting for their cause. Civil wars are, are not black and white, at least not now. And we've talked about Robert Evans' podcast, It Could Happen Here. That's a great example if you want an idea of what a civil war could kind of look like. I think, you know, go listen to that podcast. It's excellent. But I think what you're saying there, you know, the long story short of this argument is, is that we are on the edge of potentially having very serious conflict in the U.S. These authors are hesitant to call it a civil war. They refuse to call it a civil war. One question that was asked by the Harvard Gazette to this political scientist. And by the way, his name is Jay Olfelder. He was asked, what worries you the most? And he says, what really worries me is we absolutely have seen the radicalization of one of the major political parties in the U.S., both in terms of the political idea it's putting forward, but also its embrace of violence as a legitimate means to achieve those ends. The rhetoric coming from the right, watering the tree of liberty with blood, it's back to 1776, January 6th was a reflection of that. There has been a lot of small-scale street violence around protest activity in the last couple of years, especially since the summer of 2020. Also, the use of intimidation to try to push policy agendas and political agendas, especially at the local level, with people showing up at school board meetings and county council meetings and threatening people and staging outside with guns. That's newish, and it's really bad, especially if you live in the areas where this is happening. But it's not anywhere close to civil war. We're getting into this weird space where the variance in how democratic things are and how violent things are is widening and is now quite large across the country. And that fragmentation and balkanization of politics, I think, is going to get worse. That's what really worries me a lot more than are we going to get hundreds of people shooting at each other. And so, yeah, if your definition of a civil war is a full-on declaration of war, you know, against a differing party or against the government or something like that, yeah, it's it's likely not going to happen, at least not that we can foresee in the next couple of decades, right? But the type of conflict that he's describing here is, as being sort of recently sparked, it's interesting to me to think of just a few years ago, prior to 2020, not many people would see us being where we're at with, with our level of political polarization and also the types of violence that's happening in the streets. 
let alone the choices that the Supreme Courts are making and how that's affecting people. And the level of tension has increased very rapidly. And that escalation, there's no reason to believe that that's not going to continue. So one question is, why do they say yes to insane conflict, but no to to actual civil war? The other article I was going to bring up was from The Atlantic. It's called Beware Prophecies of Civil War. The idea that such a catastrophe is unavoidable in America is inflammatory and corrosive. This was written by someone named Finton O'Toole. And Finton was a teenager when the Troubles started in Ireland. He talks about how his dad came home one day and told him and his brother that a civil war was starting and that they surely would be fighting in it. He, they said how his father is a calm person, a rational person. He's not a zealot, never given to hysterical outbursts. And so he was surprised to hear this from his father, that he was so certain there would be a civil war in Ireland. And then he says the civil war never happened. The troubles did. Still included conflict, death, misery for millions of people. Now, his thesis sort of of this article, he claims that the troubles happened because people expected a civil war. That by talking about civil war, you essentially gave permission to try and make it happen. He says that the more that you talk about civil war happening, the more likely it is to actually happen or to have increased levels of conflict. And to a degree, I understand that. And I think I, I can agree with it. But not talking about it, I feel as well, doesn't take away the tension and the issues that we're having that could lead to it organically. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that being a factor. It makes me think of what's taking place currently, which is a shortage of baby formula. And how once articles start to be published about this shortage of baby formula and how it's going to be hard to find on the shelves, people go to the store and they stock up and they clear the shelves. And then there's a shortage, right? It's kind of this positive feedback loop. And I do think if you're saying, man, things are going to get bad, it's heating up, these people that disagree with us, they want to fight, then that can result in, you know, like the article claims something that's inflammatory and corrosive. It can have negative impacts. But I think as tensions heat up, if people avoid putting a label on it or avoid predicting where things are going to go, that doesn't necessarily prevent it, kind of like what you're saying. Yeah, whether we're talking about the troubles in Ireland or the years of lead in Italy, these are conflicts that killed thousands of people. In in the troubles, it was like 3,500 people that were killed over a significant period of time. It was around 30 years. So regardless of how you label the conflict, it seems pretty apparent to me that conflict is at the doorstep. Some level of conflict has already happened. And unless there is some way to de-escalate the situation in the U.S., it feels like it has to go somewhere. There are people in the U.S. who actively are campaigning for civil war. Some do it peacefully, saying they want to balkanize, you know, and split away from the United States peacefully. Others want a full-on war. I think the vast majority of people want to stay completely out of it. But the truth is, as fascism continues to rise in the United States, as we lose trust and legitimacy in our governments, in, for example, right now, the Supreme Court, as people start to feel like laws are being made that don't represent the will of the people, the desire of the people, it feels like that tension has to boil over at some point. Again, we are not claiming on this podcast that there's going to be civil war. I tend to agree here that, that whether you call it civil war or whatever you call it, there is an escalation of conflict and we haven't seen the peak of that yet. 
And as I think about everything that we've said, you know, we've said a lot and there's a lot more still to say, but I think for now, this is a good place to tie up the conversation. I'm fascinated as I hear these arguments for why people think conflict won't take place or won't escalate or won't reach a certain level. And while a particular level of conflict here in the U.S. internally or internationally isn't guaranteed, it's not inevitable, I think there's plenty of evidence that tensions are rising and that we can expect more and more of these friction points that will make conflict more and more likely. I really, really, really hope that we don't see more war. We don't see more conflict Sometimes people kind of glorify it or they romanticize it. It's almost like there's an appetite for it. And I think people just don't realize how incredibly atrocious and awful it is. There's nothing to look forward to in a major conflict. And so while I unfortunately think the likelihood of these increased tensions will continue to rise, I just keep hoping that things will de-escalate. We'd love to hear thoughts from all of you listening. We appreciate all the thoughts that do get sent our way. We feel like this is a conversation that we're all involved in together. We're learning and growing, figuring out what to expect, and each in our own way trying to do our part to mitigate that. Thanks for listening. Please leave a review, share with family members, friends where you see appropriate, and join us on Patreon if you're interested in hearing the additional conversations that we have there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.